0: You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hello, my name is Steve Lacey, and I'm the Allied Health Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. I also work as a tutor radiographer in the medical imaging department at RCH. There are times throughout some medical imaging studies, whether it's CT, fluoroscopy, MRI, and others, where the use of contrast media plays a pivotal role. But there's also times where this is not required, and when it is, there's different types of contrast that can be used, different amounts, different ways that it can be introduced into the body. Medical imaging staff can also be known to be very particular about the instructions that we dish out to other departments about what we require from them when we have a patient that needs contrast in their study. Well, hopefully to clear up a lot of this confusion, we have with us today Dr. Karen Atkin. Karen's a paediatric radiologist here at the RCH. One of the most calm people that I know, mother to four children, absolute superwoman. Welcome, Karen.
1: Thanks, Steve.
0: Karen, let's start by asking what contrast media is and why we need it.
1: So, Steve, uh, contrast media, sometimes we call it dye or sometimes it's known as a contrast agent, are chemicals that are sometimes used during our imaging studies in order to enhance or improve the quality of the images to enable the radiologist like myself to more accurately interpret the scan and to determine the answer to the requesting doctor's question.
0: Okay, and so there's different types of contrasts. Can you tell us about these?
1: Yes, certainly. There are different types of contrasts are used for the different imaging modalities. For imaging that uses x-rays, so that's x-ray, CT, fluoroscopy, and angiography, primarily it's an iodine-based contrast agent that would be used. Um, You might also hear these being called water-soluble contrast. Um, and this type of contrast medium can be injected into the blood vessels, or it can also be swallowed. Yep. For fluoroscopy studies where the dye or the contrast is being put into the gastrointestinal tract, so either it's being swallowed or injected via the NG tube or enema studies, um, we can use either a water-soluble contrast, so the iodine-based contrast, or sometimes we use a substance called barium. It's actually it's barium sulfate that's used, and this isn't water-soluble. And it's a solid powder that needs to be suspended in water to allow it to be swallowed. And this is a bit thicker and sticks to the bowel wall a bit more so that um, it can help us to see things a bit clearer.
0: And sometimes we get these in uh, pre-mixed as well. So you can actually get them in powder form where you have to yes. do your own mixing, but other times you get pre-mixed ones too. Yeah,
1: yep, that's right. Sometimes we, even, we, we don't necessarily use any pre-made contrast media. Sometimes we can just use air or water um, as what we call a negative contrast agent within the lumen of the bowel
0: Okay. And so this is probably more, I guess, to to kind of take it back a step as well and talk about the definition of contrast and what contrast actually is. Contrast, as a word, of course, is just the difference between one thing and another. So just because we're putting contrast in doesn't mean we're making things brighter or anything like that. We might be doing it to make things darker compared to what's around that area. Exactly,
1: yeah. It just uh, increases the difference between the different types of tissue. Yeah. So the majority of cases we do make them brighter, but as I say, yeah, sometimes we, we're aiming to make them darker on our images.
0: Yeah, and and we use contrast in MRI too? Uh,
1: we do as well, yes. The contrast used in MRI works in a slightly different way because the technique is different, but that contrast that we use is called gadolinium. It's a gadolinium-based uh, contrast and we also give that intravenously. It's a bit like the water-soluble contrast that we'd use in um, CT and X-ray.
0: Do you ever use oral contrast in MRI?
1: We can use water quite nicely or a a, a thicker type of water in MRI for the gastrointestinal check, Okay, only in relatively few cases.
0: So how do you know, Karen, which type of contrast to use and when? Because obviously there's been a heap that we've just talked about. How do we know which type to use and when?
1: I guess the first question that we ask ourselves as radiologists is whether we need to use contrast agent at all. Um, And we base that on whether or not we think it's going to help us answer the the question that the doctors are asking us. And then if it's a CT scan, we need to decide if we need to use both intravenous contrast and oral contrast or one or the other. And then if we're going to be injecting contrast into vessels, either veins or arteries, um, or the urinary system via the bladder, we need to use water-soluble contrast.
0: Right. And... Why can you only use water-soluble contrast in those situations?
1: Uh, Well, water-soluble contrast is the only thing that's safe and licensed for intravenous use. We couldn't use barium, for example, because the barium's tiny solid particles suspended in a liquid, so it's very thick, um, and it would clog up or occlude the blood vessels, and that causes problems as it passes through the body.
0: Yeah, lots of problems. And what about the gastrointestinal tract? What type do you use here?
1: So if we're putting contrast within the gastrointestinal tract, we've got a choice um, of either water-soluble contrast or barium, or as I said, sometimes air for the negative contrast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what we're going to use will depend on a number of factors. Um, for example, we need to know what we're looking for, what the question is, and what the risks are going to be involved with the, with the study. Um, so we only use barium in fluoroscopy when we're looking at the gastrointestinal tract for swallows and follow-throughs and enemas.
0: And do you only use barium for fluoroscopy in the gastrointestinal tract?
1: Uh, No, sometimes we'll need uh, water-soluble contrast, particularly if there's a risk that the patient's had a perforation, or if they're a really small neonate with an obstruction who may need to go straight to surgery because barium's very messy when it's when it's exposed to the peritoneum. It can cause peritonitis, um, and it can also set like concrete if there's an issue with um, passage through the gastrointestinal tract if it can't be excreted. Yeah, it's preferred. Barium is preferred for follow-throughs as it doesn't get absorbed and lose its sort of density as it passes through the tract. So if it's a longer study that requires us to, f- to follow the, the passage of contrast through a longer area of the gastrointestinal tract, barium's often preferred for that.
0: Okay. And, and why can't you use barium like that, looking for the gastrointestinal tract for CT?
1: The barium's really very dense, um, and CT is a bit too sensitive to the effects of barium, so you get a lot of artifact on the CT scan, which makes it very difficult to see any of the surrounding structures.
0: Okay, so we only use water-soluble contrast for the gastrointestinal tract in CT. How much of that do we need to give?
1: So really, this depends on the patient's weight, but actually it's a pretty small amount. Here at the Children's, we dilute a small amount of contrast, sometimes only 10 to 20 mils in, in water and get them to drink about 10 mils a kilo of this solution. So for example, um, in a 30 kilogram patient, would need to drink 300 mils over the course of an hour prior to the scan.
0: So why an hour? Why not all at once?
1: Ideally, we want an even distribution of the contrast throughout the gastrointestinal tract.
0: Ah, Okay. So if a patient is having a scan at 10 a.m., then they have to start drinking this solution at 9 a.m.? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So let's move on to using water-soluble contrast for vasculature. What happens to contrast when you inject it
1: into the bloodstream? So It depends where you inject it, but as it goes in through the vein, it then follows the pathway pathway of blood um, and is eventually filtered out through the kidneys and into the urine.
0: Okay, so if if you inject it into a vein, it's going to go to the heart first in most cases, then distribute to the lungs and back to the heart and then around the body.
1: Yeah, so we time our imaging based on when we think there will be contrast in the area of interest. And it's important to know the patient's anatomy because, as you said, sometimes the plumbing isn't quite what you might expect.
0: Yeah, Uh, and, and that's why we sometimes wait a certain period of time after injecting the contrast before we scan. Yeah. Yeah, so we don't scan Straight away, we don't just inject it and then scan because we need to see it going around. Yeah. How can we predict how long it's going to take then for the contrast to be in the right spot when we scan?
1: Sometimes you can't, and we do have techniques, particularly in CT, where we might use a monitoring scan so we can just take a single one second um, time point um, every second and see when the contrast is arriving in the area of interest. And sometimes we use a timing bolus, which is a similar technique, but it, it gives us an estimate of when we're going to have contrast in the right place, and then we can time the proper scan to, to go along with that.
0: Yeah. And then how do we introduce it into the bloodstream?
1: Um, so for CT and angiography, we need a cannula in a vein, um, and then we can either hand inject through a syringe, or we have um, a special power injector that does the injection automatically at a time that we set.
0: Okay. And why would we want to use a power injection instead of a hand injection?
1: So a power injector gives us a really steady rate of injection through the whole bolus of the contrast. And sometimes we can be injecting up to sort of 100 mils of contrast. Um, And the injector can measure the pressure and sound an alarm if the pressure gets too high, suggesting there might be a problem such as um, extravasation, which is where the contrast um, bursts the vein and and extends into the surrounding tissues. And what we want it to do is to go easily up a good good calibre vein to show us what's what.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so in those types of cases, we usually have a radiographer that will be in the room watching the contrast actually going in to make sure that if there is a problem that we can stop straight away as well. Yeah. There's lots
1: of safety stops.
0: So when we power inject, it's usually into a peripheral line. So I'm going to ask you the age old question that we get asked in medical imaging all the time. Can you power inject contrast into a central line or a pick line or a Hickman's line?
1: So it's not entirely a straightforward yes or no question. The answer, I guess, is usually not. Lots of central lines are not approved for the pressure injection um, and there have been reported complications of the tips of the lines breaking off and embolizing. to example, for the lung- to the lungs. Occasionally there is a central line, such as a power pick, that is approved and we can use that, but we really need to check very carefully beforehand if it's an approved line. Um, and very occasionally if it's a real emergency situation where we can't get peripheral access we can use a central line with a real abundance of caution if the benefit would outweigh the risks.
0: Yeah, okay. So there's also limits on how much contrast we can give in in all these cases as well. Why is that?
1: Uh, there's only so much the kidneys can do. So the kidneys are filtering out all of this contrast that we use, and if we give too much of the contrast, it can cause damage to the kidneys, or if the kidneys are already damaged, then um, it can just make matters worse. Um, so maximum amounts that we use take into account the patient's kidney function, and also we don't, we don't need a huge, huge amount because it can give us lots of artefact if there's too much in the wrong place. Too much contrast can cause artefact and almost ruin the image.
0: Yeah, okay. And so this, so this is why we need to check for kidney function through looking at things like creatinine levels and that kind of stuff before we inject the contrast into the patient too.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's very important for the referring doctors or the nursing, com- nursing staff coming down with the patient to let us know if they're aware of any issues with the kidneys. But we also check on the, uh, on the record system too.
0: So I'm guessing that because we're injecting something into the bloodstream, there are other risks involved as well?
1: Yeah, mostly it's really very well tolerated and safe, but as with most things, there is a small risk of side effects or complications, Um, and side effects can include anything from uh, the patient sneezing um, through to an anaphylaxis-like allergic reaction.
0: And so these reactions can sometimes be classified into mild, moderate, and severe ones?
1: Something like sneezing, or a funny taste in your mouth might be classed as a, a very mild reaction to contrast, um, going th- right the way through to anaphylaxis-like reactions where you get a drop in your blood pressure and a rise in your heart rate and the pac- patients become very unwell and we might want to call for an emergency team to help us out in the department. There's a set of guidelines um, that are published by the College of Radiologists that help us with the management of these, of these reactions, but it's really important to be aware that they can occur so that, and to be prepped just in case they do occur and to have a pathway in your department so that things will run smoothly in any eventuality.
0: Yeah, and these, these guidelines I'm actually going to put into the, uh, the show notes of this podcast as well. So it's obviously important that we know about these risks and, and, and reactions that the patient's had if they've had this before.
1: Yeah, so that's why we try and talk to the patients or their parents beforehand to see whether or not they've had contrast before and what their experience was.
0: What are some of the things that the patient might feel when the contrast is being Injected, which which does need to be separated a little bit from what these reactions are.
1: Yeah, that's right. So it's very quite common for the patient to feel like they're quite warm all over. Sometimes they get a funny taste in their mouth. Often patients describe it as being a metallic type taste, and sometimes they might feel like they're wetting their pants, which can be quite distressing.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I I'll admit here, I've actually had contrast before, uh, and uh, it was only uh, three or four years ago that this happened. And I remembered that I was expecting to get this warm feeling all over, but what I ended up getting was I felt it all through my body, but it was more just that my arteries, it was almost like my, I could just feel the blood vessels warming up, but nothing else. Okay, That was the weirdest part because I was <laughs> expecting full like capillary warmth, but that's all I got. So it was interesting.
1: Mm, I've not had it before.
0: And how does this go with the kids? Like w- when we're talking about what they're actually going to feel, this can actually be quite a shock to them sometimes.
1: Yeah, definitely, and that's why it's really important to discuss with the patient prior to the scan. Um, we've got a little app that we can instruct the, the parents to show the kids so that gives them some idea of what, what they might experience during the examination. Perhaps we can share a link to that. Yeah, app. this
0: is the Oki app that we're talking about? Yep. Yeah. So a fair bit of preparation of the patient is required for some of the studies involving contrast. Let's start with those having contrast injections what do ward staff and clinicians need to know about preparing the patient for these?
1: We need to have a peripheral line inserted. Um, as we've said, we can't always use a central line. Um, it's good that they understand, understand that and, and why we're needing to have a peripheral line. And ideally, we'd like this to be put in before the patient comes down to CT, as we don't want them to associate CT with injections or having to have a cannula put in um because it may well be that they're gonna need another examination in the future and we don't want them to be scared of it because of the just because of the line.
0: Yeah. And does it matter what size this cannula is?
1: Often, yes. Um, sometimes the contrast, particularly in angiograms, needs to go in at a reasonably high rate, which needs a, a larger cannula. So it's good to check before that cannula goes in with the department to see what size that is the minimum that we we need for the study.
0: Okay. And what about which vessel it goes in? So an exam- for example, an arm versus a leg or, or a left or right side?
1: Yeah, sometimes it, we, we have to have a bit of flexibility from our point of view um, depending on the options that are available in that child and how easy the veins are to cannulate. But um, in, a, in some cases, particularly the more complicated um, cardiac scans, we might prefer one limb over another just because of the patient's anatomy.
0: And what about fasting? Is this required when using contrast?
1: We do ask for, for fasting prior to IV contrast. I think it's a two-hour fast. Steve, you probably know better than me. Because occasionally the patient can feel sick and we don't want them to be vomiting during the study. And then for oral contrast, especially in fluoroscopy for the swallows and the enemas, ideally we want the the gastrointestinal tract to be clear of as much contents as as possible um, so that we can actually see the contrast and it's not being diluted with the contents of the bowel or the stomach.
0: So just to summarise, let's say you're looking after a patient on the ward and they need to have a CT with oral and IV contrast. What does CT need to know and what do you need to do?
1: We need to know, does the patient have peripheral access? And if so, what size and where is it? We also need to know how much the patient weighs because that's going to determine how much contrast we give them. And then we also need to know when the patient last ate or drunk anything. And then uh, the, the team in, in medical imaging will give the ward um, instructions on how to administer the contrast orally before they come down to the department.
0: Okay, great. So we've talked about fluoroscopy and CT. What about MRI contrast?
1: So the gadolinium-based contrast agents that we use for MRI are used in a very similar way to the water-soluble iodinated contrast that we use for CT. Um, it's given intra- intravenously and the dose is based on weight. Um, and again, it's very well tolerated with few side effects, um, but it's also excreted by the kidneys, and so we'd, we'd also need to know about any renal impairment before we'd use the MRI contrast too.
0: Do we have things like power injections and, or hand injections with this, does it matter what rate it goes in for MRI?
1: Occasionally, more commonly, we'd probably use hand injections in MRI than we do in CT, but sometimes it's important, the rate.
0: Thanks a lot, Karen. Hopefully this information helps with some of the myths and misconceptions around the use of contrast in medical imaging. Uh, If anyone out there is listening uh, and they ever have a question about contrast or patient preparation instructions, you can always contact the medical imaging team in your own hospital. And I'm sure they'd prefer to help than to have an unprepared patient. We're just going to put into the show notes the college guidelines about the use of contrast media, and we'll also put a link in there to our Oki app that we have for medical imaging uh, to help prepare patients for things like contrast and other medical imaging studies. Thanks for chatting with us, Karen.
1: Thanks, Steve.
0: Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Teach, Think, Treat where we discuss aspects related to teaching and learning in a
1: busy clinical setting.